Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David Bean Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University. Today, we're devoting our show to Tom Smothers, who died last week at age 86 after a battle with cancer. Along with his younger brother, Dick, Tom was a member of the Smothers Brothers, whose 50-year career made them one of the longest-running comedy acts in show business. Dick played the upright bass and was the straight man. Tom played guitar and acted like an easily excited adolescent. Their voices blended beautifully, their comedy timing was impeccable, and their 1960s variety series, The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, was one of the most significant and groundbreaking TV programs of its time. Today, we'll salute Tom Smothers and the legacy he and Dick created with their important CBS program. We'll listen back to an interview Terry Gross conducted with Tom and Dick back in 1985, an interview I conducted with Tom in 1997, And finally, a piece of the interview Terry conducted with me in 2009 when my book about the Smothers Brothers had just been published. But first, let's begin with an appreciation that puts Tom Smothers and his comedy hour in its proper perspective. It's the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Tom and Dick Smothers didn't set out to be TV pioneers, but that's precisely what they were. Before the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour ran on CBS from 1967 to 1969, almost all TV entertainment shows set out to escape from reality, not to reflect it. There were popular sitcoms about a talking horse, a personal genie, a visiting Martian, even a dead mother reincarnated as an automobile. Reincarnated, get it? The Smothers Brothers had even starred in one of those escapist sitcoms, with Tom playing Dick's guardian angel. But they hated that show, walked away from it, and returned to the nightclub circuit and the recording of their hit comedy albums. Those LPs in the early 60s portrayed them as brothers who poked fun at folk singers and folk songs when not arguing among and about themselves. Musically, they were good enough to nail the songs and the harmonies, while often adding their own comic twists. Here's their version of the classic Western tune Streets of Laredo from one of their early albums. It's from one of my early albums, too. This is a recording from my copy of the original vinyl LP, which explains all the pops and clicks. As I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a young cowboy All dressed in white linen Dressed in white linen As cold as the clay I see by your outfit That you are a cowboy I see by your outfit You are a cowboy too We see by our outfits That we are both cowboys If you get an outfit You can be a cowboy too (laughs) In their early nightclub years and early albums They found and perfected their unique comic formula They became instant stars after appearing on Jack Parr's Tonight Show, then kept building on their twin strengths, satirizing the earnestness of folk singers and bringing a comic explosion of sibling rivalry front and center. After a few years, everyone was so familiar with Tom's catchphrase to his brother Dick, the brothers used it as the title of an album, Mom Always Liked You Best. Your mom gave you a dog. My mom gave my brother a dog, and I didn't get to have a dog in more Everybody than Everybody had dogs. I didn't have a dog. You got to have a dog in more than anything in the whole world. I wanted to have a dog of my own. I asked my mom, I said, Mom, I want to I have a dog like my brother Dickie Smothers. You remember me. I'm Tommy Smothers. <laughs> and I never got to all have right, a dog, is, and I you wouldn't let it. me play I, with your dog or anything. I remember when I was 10 years old, I said, oh, if I could only have a dog, 
My brother had a dog, and Quit I couldn't... Crying, I didn't get to play with your dog, and you, you would I? always tell Mom when I play with your dog, Hey, Tommy's playing with my dog. You remember Tommy, the kid you don't like so much? <laughs> and I didn't get to play with a dog, and I didn't have a dog. Uh, hold it a minute. And before we go any further, you, you know you had your own pet already. Crummy chicken. <laughs> well, you wanted it. It's no fun playing with a chicken. They don't bark good. So when CBS executives came to the Smothers Brothers, asking them to host a variety show they sorely needed to fill a hole in their schedule, no one thought the brothers would cause any trouble. Not even the brothers. They began each hour of that first season of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour with time-tested, finely-honed routines from their nightclub act. Like the song Cabbage, with which they opened their very first episode. Pull a cabbage down. Take it, Tom. No. <laughs> I didn't feel like taking it. You Some... didn't hear me right. I said, take it, Tom. Heard you clear as a bell. You said, take it. I... Sometimes if a fella doesn't feel like taking it, he just stands right up as American. He says, Agreed, no. agreed. Agreed. A fella doesn't have to take it. I don't... I... You're not a fella. <laughs> You're a folk singer, Tommy. You took on responsibilities. You have to take it. it You've read the folk singer's guidebook. Yeah, but I don't... I you, you read the book, right? I just didn't... Did you read the book? Yes, I read the okay, book. Okay, then you didn't... read the folk singer's credo. Well, see, I just The didn't... credo, Tommy, says... The credo says all folk singers are obligated to do what? I didn't feel Tell that. everybody, look at them, and say what you are obligated to do. <laughs> all folk singers are obligated... You're just to take it. But when the series proved instantly and unexpectedly popular, Tom Smothers, his head writer Mason Williams, and the other writers set out to say things. Things about politics, war, drugs, and the times in general, which led to censorship by CBS. That, in turn, led to increasingly fierce battles about what could and couldn't be televised. At the end, after three seasons, Tom and Dick Smothers were fired by CBS and their show pulled from the air. The Smothers brothers sued and won, but the damage was done and they had lost their primetime platform. But not before making several invaluable contributions to television. Tom Smothers, with his eye for talent and his enthusiasm for showcasing new artists, was the link between Ed Sullivan before him and Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live after him. Mason Williams, Pat Paulson, Lee French, Steve Martin, and Rob Reiner all started with the Smothers Brothers. And CBS, after firing Tom and Dick, reversed course and sought out controversial shows rather than avoiding and punishing them. In the few years after pulling the Smothers Brothers from the air, CBS presented the feminist comedy of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the anti-war comedy of M.A.S.H., and the ultra-controversial comedy of All in the Family. Tom Smothers, with his brother Dick and their staff, paved the way for all those shows, as well as, even more directly, for SNL, Jon Stewart, Bill Maher, and John Oliver. Now, let's hear Terry's 1985 interview with Tom and Dick Smothers. She began with a clip in which they spoofed the seriousness of folk music. Many folk songs have been written in the first person, the original authentic folk songs. They have been written during the uh, actual occurrence of a historic event by someone who was involved in this event. The uh, song my brother would like to sing now was written in the first person by a man about 150 years ago. It's entitled Hangman. Hangman, slack your rope. Hangman, hangman, slack your rope. Slack it for a. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, short. <laughs> we have another song which is an old folk song, and uh, it hasn't been sung enough lately. We feel it's been sort of neglected, and it's a very nice song, and I know you'll recognize it the moment we start. Jimmy crack corn and I don't care. Jimmy crack corn and I don't care. Jimmy crack corn and Jimmy crack. Wait a minute. 
That's not the way the song goes. I don't care. Tom Smothers explained to Terry that he and his brother didn't start out performing folk music. That kind of edged in us. As when we first started singing in high school, it was barbershop quartets. We were in the choirs together. We uh, had a little band, a dance band, and we sing. We sang the songs of the day, which was uh, was something Smith and the Redheads. What was it? Be sure it's true. When I say so, we weren't into folk music at all until the folk music started. Then we started. Uh, when we see uh, uh, Judy Collins, I remember she would sing. Every hanging song, you know, every verse, uh, minor every key. chorus, a lot of minor key songs. Sad and songs. Don Crawford, a, a, a good friend uh, in, in Denver, uh, was very did a profound performance of John Henry. About we, 12 minutes long. Yeah, so uh, I would go out there, and I, for some reason I always would mimic people, and it would be, we were known as satirists. I didn't even know what the word was until they said the Smothers Brothers satirized the, the folk music craze. We were just out there. I'd hear someone sing a song, and... He'd be deadly serious about it, and I couldn't help but just kind of poke a little fun at it. Well, one of the things that you both did were really long-winded introductions to the songs, and Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you thought it was um, overly serious of a lot of folk musicians to launch into the historical reasons and the ethnic um, Mm -hmm. uh, reasons behind a song that they'd perform. The long-winded introductions was just the nature of folk music, and I found them very interesting. I never thought they were... Uh, pompous or anything like that, and and to tell a background of how a song just happened when people didn't go around writing them, you know, it was wonderful. Then uh, working with, uh, we got on the tail end of things. We, uh, Sonny Terry Brownie, was it Brownie? Brownie McGee. Yeah. Uh, Josh White Senior and uh, Oscar Brand. We did some of his stuff. Um, some wonderful people out there, and in the the way the songs came about, the way they were created to me was very interesting. And then to, just to make fun in a lighthearted way and just have a really ridiculous story that has nothing to do with the music. Like Tommy had... Uh, Dark as a Dungeon? No, Dark as a Dungeon. The, the most yeah. ludicrous would be, uh, they call the wind Mariah. He says it's an old Jewish folk song, Machaya. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then Havana Gila, they danced around a hat. There was a, it was a rain dance. Actually, they danced around an umbrella. And they, similar to how they danced around hats, the Mexicans, and prayed for hair. Uh, <laughs> and you just, just, the further, the bigger the lie, uh, it just becomes, becomes funny. What were your alternatives? Did you have alternative plans if you uh, didn't become performers? Well, we never knew we were going to, in the long term, I, maybe Tommy, he probably feels different. I always thought it was a summer job for, quite, for about 10 years. <laughs> I thought it was a summer job. And uh, I never expected at the start to, to make it a paying profession. It was something to do when we were young and drop out of school a little bit. And we just seemed to get another job, and that was success. So I never planned a year in advance or whatever. I was going to go back to school. In fact, uh, after we worked a year and become teaching major, and got, I got married, and I was, I was going to, you know, we did our shot, our little fun thing. And if it wasn't for the Limelighters giving us a job at their club in Aspen in 1960, I don't know if we would have tried being a duet. So, Tom Smothers, what was your alternate plan if... if um... I had no alternate plan. <laughs> I still have no alternate plan. You have to have a plan to have an alternate. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to be a comedian. And when I first saw George Goble, who was my first influence, um, when I was... Anyway, 12, 13, 14, he was doing the Ed Sullivan show. I thought it was marvelous what this man did. And I'd like to do that, I told my principal. I said, that's what I'd like to do. And so uh, I always had a, I was, uh, had a coping problem. I was pretty uh, slow in school. And so I was genuinely uh, trying to get my uh, applause, not through scholastics, but through attention getting. If I was late for class, I'd, instead of walking in the back door and sliding into the seat, you know, I walked in the front door and apologized to the teacher and then to each of the students individually until I was sent to the principal's office, really deadpan. I knew I had this kind of a, a little bit of a gift to get people laughing. The problem I would expect is if you play a jerk on stage, that offstage people might think that you're uh, dim-witted. <laughs> Did that ever happen to you, that people would assume you know, offstage that I was so you had close. the personas? I was mm-hmm. so close to my onstage, offstage. Uh, there was just a very thin line between... People would come up to you in a purple line in the first yeah. job and say, why, why, don't do this. This is so painful. If it's, it's so upsetting to you, don't get on that stage. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that's, that's very good performance because that's like being in a, really crawling into the skin of, <laughs> of the, the, whatever character you choose, and that was the only one I had. And I was walking down the street in the purple line, and some guy says, uh, could you tell me where the Black Cat uh, Cafe is? I said, yes, yeah, just down that one street and turn left. He says, 
I know where it is. I just want to see if you knew how to give directions. You're so stupid on stage. <laughs> what about you, Dick Smothers? Did your persona on stage as the uh, just more more practical, down-to-earth uh, persona mm-hmm. apply to the role you really played in your relationship with your brother? Yeah, I think so. That's the way I am in real life, just exaggerated. I think we exaggerate our, our natural tendencies when we get into comedy. And then it's believable. You, you know, if you if you create somebody who's not there, I think you have to be a, a, a superior actor to let anybody buy it. I'm pretty logical. Basically, if things don't make any sense to me, I don't want to do it. Uh, and that's the way I control our relationship on stage with Tommy. You know, he would he would go off on a tangent, and I and I would correct him. I'm 22 months older than Dick, which is contrary to the way a, a, a act should be sh- set up. I should be the older guy with my, my personality and acne should be the, the younger brother, you know. So it shows we had no plan whatsoever. <laughs> Dick and Tom's mothers talking with Terry Gross in 1985. Today, we're remembering Tom Smothers, who died last week at the age of 86. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross here with a promo for a special conversation I had with my co-host, Tanya Mosley, only available for our Fresh Air Plus supporters. When I'm going through a really hard time, I sometimes just think about that, like all the people who I've met through interviews who've, who've come out the other end intact. Terry, I can only imagine... The lessons you've learned over time, I mean, it's more than a self-help book. Because just in the year that I've been doing this show, I learn so much with every single interview I do. Tanya and I select our favorite interviews of 2023 and talk to each other about talking in a new bonus episode only available on Fresh Air Plus. Find out more and join for yourself at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to Terry's 1985 interview with Tom and Dick Smothers. CBS gave them their own variety show in 1967. She asked Tom what he asked for when they were given creative control. That, that meant uh, the material, the control content. of the writers, content, uh, the, the look of the show, everything. And uh, the fact that it, uh, it really went well. We had a nice cast of people put together by the producers and everything. Uh, but it wasn't quite what we wanted, but... It evolved, evolved, and I got younger writers, got Mason Williams, I'd bring him in. If I didn't like the, if a writer seemed like it was cliche and was bringing out old material, not creative new ideas, we'd replace them each uh, cycle, each uh, mm-hmm. 13-week period, until we had pretty much what we, uh, what I wanted. Uh, the times dictated, uh, awareness came about about that time in the mid-60s when uh, Vietnam, voter registration, Selma, all those things started coming through and they started leaking into our minds, our own consciousness, and they started coming out a little bit in uh, attitudes in the show. And our writers were young, and we kind of uh, had this little kind of small group that uh, worked late into the night. None of the other shows did. We'd leave at sometimes 1 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night uh, from reworking uh, sketches and stuff. And uh, everybody had love beads on and sandals. It was a real, we were a real product of the times. And we reflected uh, that viewpoint that was not being 
So then instantly, once it was a hit, it was a hit. It was a surprise hit. It really was. Nobody predicted it. CBS uh, wanted us to pull back. Didn't want any controversy and anything. They not realizing the content of the show was was in large part part of its success. So that was a running battle for seventy two. I think we did seventy two mm-hmm. episodes. It was pretty much a running battle from day one through the uh, firing at the last. Well, they actually censored, uh, deleted some of the performance oh, oh, law, yeah. excerpts. That was their legal right. And once they got it, they, uh, I guess by the contracts and stuff, they could take out anything they wanted. But uh, How did that work? When, when would you have to deliver the show to them, oh, so to speak? Oh, that was another whole thing. <laughs> it changed. It changed every year. <clears throat> at first, uh, at first uh, we... Uh, we delivered the shows just a, a normal practice, but I think the way it was it was about a, a week. Strike front. happened, uh, music strike, strike, so that put everything behind, and uh, some of those things. So we were all of a sudden working, uh, taping on a Friday, delivering uh, for, for a Sunday show. That I mean editing with a razor blade, and I, of course, being naive and not knowing anything about television. I involve myself in everything. Well, wait a minute. Razor blade <laughs> means that they did not have the electronic sophistication that they have now. So you actually physically took razor blades and cut tapes and put pieces together, and they worked straight through right after production. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait. And then they gave it to a girl, and she flew to New York and handed them yes, these the tapes. Yes, the New York tape. So, so when they would say, we don't like this part here, we say, you must take that out, or we will take it out. I said, well, I'll take it out. And it did take a long time. What would you do it? You'd have to put something back in to replace it. No, if they wanted out, we presented our our contractual obligation, which was to present a show of an hour's length or uh, whatever it was, minus the commercials. Uh, after that, they they could take it out. They take, they took things out and put in a, a Nixon commercial uh, when it's political. <laughs> oh, of course, I got furious. What, what what had they taken out to put in the Nixon commercial? I don't was, remember. I do. I do. It was it was the whole Belafonte piece. Mama, look a boo boo. It was the '68 convention news footage from Chicago. The bloody. Uh, riots and everything, and Belafonte sang some calypso number, numbers to uh, news footage that had been seen on the air. Nothing offensive about it, except where you'd see uh, Mayor <laughs> Daly in, in, uh, in the news footage at the convention, and the lyric might say, look a boo-boo, <laughs> or something like that. It was it was light <clears throat> satire. They took the whole hunk out. It must have been five minutes or no, more. No, seven. Seven minutes, and put in a huge Nixon thing, <laughs> which was a little salt in the wound. But it was gamesmanship, I think, a little bit there. It was hardball. Tom and Dick's mothers talking with Terry Gross in 1985. Coming up, we continue our retrospective on Tom's mothers. Here's Harry Belafonte performing Don't Stop the Carnival, a number cut in its entirety from that variety show's third season opener. I'm David B. and Cooley, and this is Fresh. I have to talk to the governor today concerning the carnival parade. Have to talk to the governor today concerning the carnival parade. Trinidad Here come the woman walking up the block With she bottom going like a clock Come the woman walking up the block With she bottom going like a clock No carnival, the woman said Oh Lord, you're better off dead Show me the way to the governor's mansion I'm going to have me a record session Lord, don't stop the carnival Lord, don't stop the carnival You care about what's happening in the world Let's State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. 
From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. On today's show, we're remembering Tom Smothers of the comedy duo The Smothers Brothers, who died last week at age 86. On the 50th anniversary of their being fired from the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour by CBS, the National Comedy Center and the Chautauqua Institution hosted their onstage reunion before thousands of adoring fans. I was there as the moderator, and my job was to introduce clips and throw out some questions to Tom and Dick. It was the only time I ever shared the stage with them, and though I was well aware of Tom's self-critical nature, this was a chance for me to see a whole new side of him his keen instincts for what he thought was funny and why. He wanted, at some point, to do his act as the yo-yo man, where Dick offers commentary while Tom silently does yo-yo tricks and acts sort of like a human Gumby. I offered several suggestions about when to introduce the yo-yo man bit, but Tom shot them all down. Finally, I suggested to Tom, why don't you just do it whenever the urge strikes you? Interrupt me or Dick or yourself and just stand up and pull out your yo-yo. He gave me a smile, one I'll never forget because he saw the possibilities instantly. And later on stage, midway through one of my questions, he pulled out his yo-yo and the audience went crazy. Tom Smothers was hard on himself and hard to please. But when I spoke to him for fresh air in 1997, he finally shifted from self-deprecation to a grudging appreciation of what he and Dick had done on stage, on records, and especially on television. When it comes to the, the 60s, you really can't find anything on television that boiled it all down into one lump in the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. I mean, the sexual revolution, the drugs, the rock and roll, the peace movement, the generation gap, anti-authority... Mm-hmm. It's all right there, and yet you did it without losing the core audience um, that you started with. No, that was a, that was an exceptional thing. Mason Williams uh, was a great contributor, and uh, the process was really fun. We never quite uh, had a chance to. Uh, I always thought to do the craft better, and that's probably what I'm thinking about. Uh, someone told me Bob Newhart was looking at. Uh, they were did an interview with him, and. Uh, and they're playing some of his old albums back. And in fact, his first album, The Button Down Mind, he says, God, I can't stand that. Don't play it. Don't play it. And he says, why? It's great. So, well, they took some of the pauses out to tighten it up. And that's not my timing. <laughs> so uh, I don't think anybody who's ever been a writer or a, a performer or a, a musician has recorded or published something hasn't looked back at their earlier work with, with a more critical eye uh, well, than the person who did it. Well, wasn't timing always very, very important to you and your brother in terms of the pauses, in terms of the ways you would start an act with just a couple of minutes and then, you know, you turn around a few years later, you guys are always evolving it and all of a sudden it's a nine, ten minute bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I believe that timing, it's like the most important, uh, silence is probably the most important uh, part of music and silence uh, or, or tension are one of the most important things in comedy. The more air we can put in there, uh, the better. I, f- I also felt that uh, even though the show was, I thought uh, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in totality was uh, uh, covered all those bases, a lot of things, I felt that uh, Dick and I personally, are th- we didn't have much air. <laughs> I was uh, involved in a cue cards. So this is a, 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 a kind of a self-critical observation. I feel much better about the shows. I loved him when we did it. Uh, I just feel a little uncomfortable looking at him now because of, uh, it could have done, <laughs> could have gone better. That's that's the thing. But air, like Laurel and Hardy, and uh, had such wonderful space and, and timing is uh, doesn't even have to be uh, an astute observation. It just has to be timed right. And if we can hold tension, it's that makes us unique. And whether it be content or or no content, you can. Uh, keep the attention of an audience that way. Now, do you feel that when you came around to do the revival series, uh, mm-hmm. you know, CBS had you do a 20th anniversary special, and then they would grant you a couple of shows here, a couple of shows there, mm-hmm. a couple of shows, um, that on those you were able to focus more on your own act with yourself and your brother? 
I was better able to focus on the show and on the act. But definitely, Dickie and I, uh, after watching the first shows, I remember that we were, I would see cue cards. I would be reading cue cards. Just the, the eye contact wasn't there. So I made sure this uh, reunion show, there was no cue cards. That we, uh, so the space we could really think and talk. And also the, uh, the uh, actual show itself had an overall better pace. How, how important is eye contact to the way you work with your brother? It's everything. Uh, it's funny, we, uh, you, can see in, you can see people when they're not looking at each other, if they're reading cue cards. Uh, the tension can hold much better when uh, two people are staring at each other, and you can, it's palpable. Even if it's a, a, a total uh, um, side view facing each other where you can't even see the eyes, there's a, a head cock, there's a, there's a, a, a ten- body language that tells you that there's eye contact being made. When you got the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour... Mm-hmm. Didn't you get the opportunity of creative control because you were basically going into a no-lose time slot like someone would today going in opposite Seinfeld? Pretty much. Also, there's no reason not to uh, grant us uh, creative control because uh, we had shown no inclination. Uh, we were short hairs. <laughs> we were clean-cut. They didn't expect anything uh, that happened happened. I don't think anybody at that time in the mid-'60s expected... expected uh, the expression of uh, dismay over the war and voter registration, all these things that were just taking place and sexual revolution, all those things. So, uh, Well, were you just and, laying in the weeds? I mean, did you have no, this grand I, plan? <laughs> I had no plan. I think most people don't have plans that uh, sometimes do something uh, extraordinary. I got uh, censored, so I, I started saying things that... Um, not even knowing that there was anything wrong with them. But then I started becoming a little more involved, and then pretty soon it became a... Someone says, you can't say that. I would say, oh, we, we can too. <laughs> yeah, well, you were basically the only young guy with a platform at that time on primetime television. We were kind of, I, I, in hindsight, I can see what we were, uh, the Smothers Brothers were pretty much, uh, had no choice. We were young. Uh, the whole staff was basically young with some seasoned writers in there, but primarily was a, uh, under 30. Uh, Rob Reiner, Steve Martin, Mason Williams, uh, Bob Einstein, they were all, and they all felt the same way as, as, as youth did. It was a great cultural clash, and uh, we were there with a, a show, and we had to reflect that. It was just, uh, uh, I think it was a responsibility, even though I didn't think it then, but uh, I, I perceive it now as that we had no choice. But I still don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. To say that you had no choice and were sort of dragged along or you were at the, you know, the, the fringes of this movement that we're carrying around anyway is one thing. But um, you were, in terms of the rock and roll acts that you presented, the things that you brought on, the stuff that you discussed uh, going against the war, you basically were the center there was just a lot of uh, uh, serendipity in the Smothers Brothers. A young had a uh, number one had a, had a big show. Uh, happened to be during these uh, very culturally uh, kind of shake uh, uh, earthquake, cultural earthquake, and um, social. And uh, we were young enough, and all those things happened. I always just say we were at the scene of the accident, and made the best of it we could. We were there. We did not uh, shirk our our duty to b- bring to television as 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 intelligent and as interesting a, a, a show as we could. But uh, I think circumstances really made a big difference because if we'd have been, had that show in the 50s or we had it in the 80s, uh, it would have never had the impact, even if we'd have uh, been diligently uh, trying to do the most intelligent, thoughtful uh, uh, observations about life. Perhaps your most famous act of defiance on this Mother's Brothers Comedy Hour, breaking the, back, the blacklist on Pete Seeger. Mm-hmm. and booking him. And was that a calculated effort on your part to sort of rail against the CBS censors? I believe that was in uh, uh, 68, 60, one of the last two seasons. And I did get uh, more stubborn, more uh, resolute in my, uh, in my need. And our, our crew and our writers wanted to express things. And it was more calculated. As a matter of fact, I... Uh, I said to all our guests that were ever guests on it, whether it be uh, new groups or old groups or actors or com- comedians, I always say, uh, you're our guest on our show. Was there anything you'd like to do? And we'd like to present what, uh, what you'd like to do. And uh, Pete Seeger said, waist deep in the big money. And we s- sang at rehearsal. And I said, uh, that's, that's right on. And uh, be my guest. And then the censors looked at it and says, veiled 
reflection on uh, our policy in Vietnam. It wasn't very veiled. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did uh, purposely uh, say, yes, that's good. They cut it out. Uh, we brought him back the next year, and uh, I said, what would you like to sing? He says, waist deep in the big money. I said, well, be my guest this time uh, because it got so much publicity uh, and the, the word, ugly word censorship was coming up that they let it go. And those, uh, it was the only show, I guess, that had a uh, topical viewpoint uh, about our involvement in Vietnam. It was a bad idea, and it was uh, morally bankrupt, I thought, ethically wrong. But that, uh, that consciousness came all over all of us in the process of doing the show. Tom Smothers in 1997. Coming up, we listen back to my conversation with Terry Gross about my book, Dangerously Funny, The Uncensored Story of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. This is Fresh Air. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. On the Code Switch Podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. We're remembering Tom Smothers of the comedy duo The Smothers Brothers. He died last week at the age of 86. In 2009, I wrote a book about Tom and Dick titled Dangerously Funny, The Uncensored Story of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. That's when I sat down to talk with Terry. David, welcome to Fresh Air, and congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks a lot. Now, you've brought some really good clips with you from episodes of the Smothers Brothers TV series, and I'd like to start with one because I think it gives a good sense of the Smothers Brothers comedy and also how they managed to bring politics into their show. So would you introduce it for us? Yeah, sure. I I like this because it's a fairly early clip when the Smothers Brothers are still sort of considered to be, you know, just genial, nice folk satirists. And yet they're starting to hit on uh, public issues uh, and even attack the president uh, in a very obvious way. And this was President Johnson? This was President Johnson at the time, yes. Okay, so let's hear it. Hey, Tom, you know, I just read in the newspaper this week where President Johnson has now asked Congress to pass a series of taxes, you know, to discourage people from traveling abroad. You know, I don't... I, I, what do you I think read, about that? I read it too, but I don't think he has to uh-huh. go that far. I don't think that's necessary to go that far with well, that. Well, look at it. It's a very, 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 very difficult situation. You know, people you're, keep spending money abroad and it's hurting our economy. People keep wanting to travel to other countries instead of staying here in the United States. Yeah, well, I think President Johnson should come up with something uh, positive as an inducement to keep the people here, something very positive. And yeah, that's right. As an inducement to that, keep the people... That's good thinking, but yeah. look at what can the president do to make people want to stay in this country? Well, he could quit. <laughs> David, was that considered pretty radical at the time? Yeah, um, for an entertainment variety show, uh, almost unprecedented, where you had these figures that were actually talking about public policy. Uh, TV in the 60s, um, the Smothers Brothers began in, in February of 67. At that point, almost all of primetime was trying intentionally to be as innocuous as possible. Um, and the Smothers Brothers came on and at a time when there was one television in the house and everybody watched it, for the first couple of seasons, they, they pulled this amazing magic act and straddled the chasm of the generation gap. They had Kate Smith and Simon and Garfunkel on the same show. They had Mickey Rooney and The Who on the same show and appealed to both you know, generations. David, you know so much about so many different TV shows. You're just like a walking encyclopedia of television. Of all the shows you could have written a history of, why did you choose the Smothers Brothers? Um, This one, I wondered about that. This one actually, (laughs) I did once I was into it and I was into like my fifth year of writing and my tenth year of writing. And I realized, I think this show, first of all, was at a pivotal point in, in TV history that Tom Smothers fought 
for freedom of expression and fought for a whole generation and lost. And so TV changed and, and, and changed really significantly. And I argue that we've never gotten it back. I mean the things that we think of as TV freedom, um, it's on cable or it's on late night. But in prime time, we've rarely had it since. And then the personal thing is that this show premiered when I was 13 and um, all of the stuff that was on there meant so much to me just because I was at that impressionable age and I was watching with my dad and it was just a really nice weekly experience. You mentioned you wanted to write this book in, in part because Tom Smothers fought and lost and what he lost was the censorship battle. Mm-hmm. There was a considerable amount of censorship of the show and he really took a stand and he lost and, and the show was taken off the air by the network, CBS. Um, let's talk a little bit about what censorship was like on TV then and we're talking about the second half of the 1960s. What are some of the things you couldn't say then that you can say now? Well, well famously, when um, Lucille Ball was pregnant in real life and wrote it into her character in the 60s, she couldn't even use the word pregnant in the episode in which she was having a baby. They had to say it in Spanish, in Ciente, you know. I mean, it, it was so ridiculous. Um, the censorship was so pervasive that even recounting it, it seems so silly. They, they cut an entire sketch with Elaine May uh, because it was censors getting excited about the movies that they were censoring. And rather than cut a word or two, they cut the entire sketch. Oh, and there was the phrase in it, what is it, I, I feel my heart beating in my breast, and they wouldn't let them say breast, so they ended up saying, I feel my heart beating in my wrist. <laughs> yes, beating wildly in my wrist, yes. And they didn't And they didn't even let that go. They didn't let that go on the yeah. air either. All right. So, um, and drug references, you couldn't use those either. Well, the the drug references, if they caught them, they would take them out. But the 60s, things were so new that they didn't recognize a lot of them when they saw them. So the Smothers were able to slip some stuff by and Tom actually enjoyed this battle a little bit and so did Mason Williams who was one of the writers. And so they would put in things that really meant nothing and instruct the crew and the writers and everybody around to laugh like dirty, sniggering little laughs. And so – the censors would say, well, you can't say rowing to Galveston. And they'd say, well, why not? And, well, you just can't say it. And so they would drive them crazy just for the fun of it too. We're remembering Tom Smothers of the comedy duo The Smothers Brothers. He died last week at the age of 86. George Harrison came on the show to support The Smothers Brothers in their fight for free speech on the show. And um, tell us a little bit about that appearance, and then we'll hear a brief excerpt of it. Well, I, I, I love the whole Beatles-Smothers uh, Brothers connection because in 1964, the Beatles show up on Ed Sullivan, CBS, Sunday night. It makes the Beatles. It makes the whole British invasion. It changes society. Four years later, the Beatles have stopped touring. They're still the biggest thing in the world, and they've made this new thing called videos of, of Hey Jude and Revolution. And so for the United States premiere, instead of giving them to Ed Sullivan Sunday night at 8, they give them to the Smothers Brothers Sunday night at 9. You know, and that's basically saying attitudinally we want to side with our generation. We want to, we want to be where the Smothers Brothers are. So um, at the beginning of this one show, George Harrison just shows up unbilled, a beetle just to – show up on the Smothers Brothers. Let's hear it. Do you have something important? Something very important to say on American television. You know, we don't, we, a lot of times we can't, we don't have opportunity saying anything important because it's American television. Every time you say something, (laughs) they try to say something important, they, uh, clap, 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 cue the lines. (laughs) Well, whether you can say it or not, keep trying to say it. That's what's important. You get that? Keep trying to say it. That's what's important. Very interesting. From George Harrison to the Smothers Brothers. Um, It's amazing thinking of having a a Beatle in 1968, unbilled and unannounced. Mm -hmm. (laughs) People would be promoting that for for days, weeks, months. I know. If they knew he was going to be on. 
Um, and you know how much I love the Beatles, so I love that clip. Right, yeah. right. Did, did that clip have any repercussions? Uh, no, no. They, they were – but it's odd to me. After the show was – you know, after they were fired and the show was pulled off, Bob Einstein, one of the writers, says, how do you cancel a show or fire – you know, how do you get rid of a show that gives you a Beatle? So is there one show you can point to that you think really did in the Smothers Brothers? Um, oh, certainly. It's the the first time that David Steinberg uh, came on as a comic and did a religious sermonette, a comic sermonette. It got more negative mail than anything in the history of broadcasting up to that point. And so the CBS censors sent Tom Smothers a memo saying, OK, you can have, you can have David Steinberg back. No more religious sermonettes ever. So he invites David Steinberg back and and even though it's not in the script, says, hey, how'd you like to do another one of those sermonettes? And so they add it in to the week's run through and he does it. He tapes it. Uh, that entire hour is never shown and the Smothers Brothers are uh, fired very shortly thereafter. So you actually brought with you um, a recording of the sermonette that was never aired. Yes. Yeah. These are available now on, on – you know, Time Life has the last two seasons out of the Smothers Brothers, the best of them. And one of the outtakes is this because it was never shown this whole hour. Back then, no one ever joked about religion other than Bill Cosby doing the Noah routine. And that was – you know, that wasn't about content. This was about content. OK. So let's hear it. This is uh, David Steinberg. That way he got into a ship that was commandeered by 23 Gentiles. <laughs> A bad move on Jonah's part. <laughs> and the Gentiles, as they want from time to time, threw the Jew overboard. <laughs> now here there are two concepts that we must deal with. There is the New Testament concept and the Old Testament concept. The Old Testament scholars say that Jonah was in fact swallowed by a whale. The Gentiles, the New Testament scholars, they say, uh, hold it, Jews. No. Jonah was in, Jonah, they literally grabbed the Jews by the Old Testament. <laughs> okay, that's David Steinberg and recorded in March of 1969, never broadcast on the Smothers Brothers show. Yeah, I, I, there's a great story about that. When the Smothers Brothers sued CBS and went to trial, uh, David Steinberg was called as one of the witnesses and the CBS lawyers, you know, made him redo his that, – that very thing and, and they cross-examined him and said, now, when you were saying New Testament, did you – Weren't you actually referring to testicles? Weren't you? And, and David Steinberg said, well, yes. Why were you doing that? Because otherwise it wouldn't be funny. And, you know, it's no wonder the Smothers won that case. Well, the, the case was, again, that the network accused them of not delivering programs on time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and clearly what they were really wor- worried about was the kind of content and language that was – you know, getting them into trouble. Yeah, the big um, difference is that the Smothers Brothers were not canceled. They had already been renewed for a fourth season. Mm-hmm. They were fired. And so Tom was reacting, saying he was un- he was fired unfairly because anything that he had signed in terms of a contractual obligation, he had lived up to. That it was all these other little, you know, ephemeral things that they'd thrown on him, you know, through the years that he hadn't adhered to. And is, uh, is that the ground on which Tom Smothers sued CBS after CBS fired the Smothers Brothers? Well, it's the one that went all the way through to the end. He wanted to, f- to go on First Amendment rights and really make this a huge case. Mm-hmm. But he was advised by his ACLU lawyers who were the only people who would represent him that uh, that would put it in a different court. It would make it a different thing. And so just go for this more narrow focus. Did the Smothers Brothers ask you to write the book? You, you allude to that in the acknowledgments. Um, one time after I interviewed Tom, he said, well, are you going to write the book? And I said, what book? And he said, well, the book on us because I'd written in a previous book an entry on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and I guess it was – he agreed with it. And so he said, I'll give you total access um, but total freedom. And as a journalist, that's just something you don't get. 
And so I said, well, I'll have to think about it. And then I waited three seconds and I said, okay. <laughs> and, and he laughed. And then I remember him going down this very long escalator in Atlantic City and he yells up at me just before he goes out of sight. He goes, I just want to read it before I'm dead. <laughs> and that was 15 years ago. So I thank Tom for taking such good care of himself. Well, David, I want to thank you for talking about your new book, Dangerously Funny, about the Smothers Brothers. Um, it was my honor, really. Terry and I talking about the Smothers Brothers back in 2009. Tom Smothers died last week. He was 86 years old. And it's one of the highlights of my career as a TV critic that my job gave me the opportunity to know and spend time with the Smothers Brothers. For our final piece of music today, here's Classical Gas, written and performed by one of the head writers of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, Mason Williams. Monday's show, actor Sterling K. Brown. In the miniseries The People vs. O.J. Simpson, Brown played prosecutor Christopher Darden. He was one of the stars of the NBC series This Is Us and was in Black Panther. He co-stars in the new film American Fiction, which is on lots of ten best lists. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sharrock. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David Cool. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day.